If you have a brain, you have bias. So let's just own it. Some biases help us by simplifying our decision-making process. Other biases hold us back by impacting who gets hired and promoted and even who we approach to be our friends. Welcome to Breaking the Bias, a podcast where we interview impact makers who are breaking the bias when it comes to inclusion and equity. Because sharing our stories is how real belonging happens. Choosing to be consciously unbiased is like a, it's an active decision to never be comfortable. <laughs> you know? Yep. And that's, that's, that's hard. Consciously Unbiased co-founder Ashish Kushal sat down with Michael Gaston, founder of the media company Cut in Seattle just before the coronavirus swept through the states. Disclaimer, if you're working from home and listening to this conversation with little ones around, you might want to put in your headphones as some F-bombs will be dropped. Cut is known for its viral videos that challenge stereotypes and uncover biases. In this very real conversation, Michael Gaston shares everything from why traditional diversity training doesn't work to what it was like growing up as a mixed race kid. Here is his story. So we're excited to have Michael Gaston. He's a good friend and I'm also trying to get him to be an advisor. So let's see if that works out. (laughs) (laughs) But um, he's definitely leading the charge on sort of how to rethink diversity in the workplace and how to rethink diversity in general and how to rethink pretty much everything and changing the paradigm. so one of the things I'd love to talk to you about is um, why do you think diversity is not working in the workplace right now? So I have a lot of thoughts about that. I think that when I think about larger corporations, I think the reason why it doesn't work is because it's um, it, there's been no innovation when it comes to uh, incorporating diversity into the overall corporate infrastructure. You know, a lot of the stuff that people are doing now is the same shit that they were doing in the 1960s. And, and people bristle at being told what to think all the time. Um, I think that a lot of the work that people are doing in that space is also very performative. You know, it's, um, there's a, everyone is aware of their own brand these days, not just giant corporations, but individual people. And so we've come to a point where everyone is so self-aware about how they think they should be acting Mm -hmm. that a lot of the work that they're doing is really about, um, about performing that activity as opposed to really internalizing why it's important and then doing it. Um, yeah, I think that's the main reason. I, I, one thing that I say all the time is that if diversity is really important to you as a company, then you would be measuring it in the same way that you measure revenue. Mm-hmm. And if you're not doing that, then it's just like a bunch of platitudes. Absolutely. How would you define diversity? Man, diversity. I think it's, I think the way that I think about diversity is in terms of mindset, right? Now, to me, uh, that doesn't mean that I'm going to be super satisfied with 10 white straight men in a room just because they all have different ideas because they came from, you know, different backgrounds. That's not enough. Mm -hmm. You know, I think so much of diversity uh, requires representation in order to get to some kind of material change. So I, you, you want people who literally look different from each other, mm-hmm. who really do come from very fundamentally different backgrounds. That's mm-hmm. how you get to a place of, of um, a lot of diversity in terms of mindset. But to me, it, it all it ultimately comes down to that. You know, like, do you have the type of people who are going to be in the room who are th- not all going to agree? You know, yeah, and and. and as a media company, that's probably the most important thing that we do. Mm-hmm. You know, I uh, 
whenever I go, <laughs> whenever I go out into the world, which is how I describe leaving Seattle, uh, I'm asked, how do you guys, how do you guys do this? How do you make something so creative or innovative or how do you just keep doing that? And the thing I usually tell them is, well, you know, we don't hire the same people you guys do. Like we hire people you would never even consider. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of the things I've said in the past also is that my creative director had was an arborist for 10 years and he was 40 years old. And so um, hiring this black uh, 40-year-old arborist to come in and be creative, even though he hadn't done anything like that, hadn't worked at a tech company, hadn't worked in a startup or a media company, and then given him all this responsibility that that would never have happened in a million years. And the result has been pretty great. He brings a completely different perspective than, you know, some 22 year old with a handlebar mustache riding a fixie bike. (laughs) So what did you do to like figure out that this guy could fit this role? Well, he must look past the paradigms of normal. What's their pedigree? What's the resume say? Yeah. You dug deeper. I think a lot of it is just conversational, you know, uh, there are so many different types of ways to go about hiring and you're um and it doesn't matter if you incorporate all of them or not it's almost always a fucking crapshoot mm-hmm. um so i i think that your gut is actually important you know i was reading Yuval Harari's 21 lessons for the 21st century and one of the things that he talks about is how important instinct is and that often we um we dismiss it because it's not the same as logic or reasoning, but really it's an evolutionary um, rationality, right? Like we basically, that instinct is us having learned over all these millennia to condition ourselves to come to a conclusion about something very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And whenever I've trusted my instinct about stuff, I've, it's always worked out. Mm -hmm. The only, literally the only time I've had trouble is when I've ignored it. So a lot of it is just collaboration, Mm. bringing a person into a room, asking them questions, seeing if there can be some kind of, um, how well they communicate with you on ideas and whether they have ideas. Um, you know, lateral thinking is, is one of those things that's not really, taught or encouraged mm-hmm. it's almost like we're we're disciplined with the idea of like taking that out of us yeah. in some way and so for me it's it's like you bring a person in a room and then you almost can instantly tell whether or not they have the uh the ability to think differently mm-hmm. let's talk about some of your videos so the cuts do, doing some amazing things to sort of change the way people look at the stuff so one of my favorite videos is um the one where you have a gentleman standing in the middle and you have 10 or 15 people lined up and you have to guess, guess their, their occupation. Oh yeah. I'd love for you to talk about that and how you came up with that and how it's kind of helped to break the bias around people's perceptions and what people or they think they should be doing. Yeah. I remember, so I wasn't, I didn't direct the piece um, and I didn't produce it or cast it, but I was in the room when we were, when we were, you know, ideating, um, I hate the word ideating. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's like I. What, it's like something startups and serial killers do. <laughs> so when we were brainstorming in a room and we were talking different lineup ideas, lineup is one of one of our formats that we that we do. And 
I'm not the one who, who even came up with that. I think that was Chan, who is uh, my visual anthropologist uh, and who also is our head of content. And he was the one who brought it up. And it, it was one of those things that's an instant obvious yes. So much of lineup, which is exactly how you describe, there are people who are standing up and then there is a guesser who comes in and they are posed a question. And the idea is to then try to figure it out. No. So if the question is who is the, who is a sex worker, then they have to like <laughs> deduce that. Yeah. Or in this case, like matching an occupation to the right person. Yeah. Um, but the purpose isn't actually to discover what their occupation is, right? Like the purpose isn't to discover uh, or or to correctly match them to the right job. It's really to it's an exercise in making public your private thoughts and judgments. And then that becomes a thing that we examine. And and what's nice is when people realize that, mm -hmm. right? Um, not everyone gets that. A lot of them are just sort of the audience is watching along and they're trying to, it's a game to them. Yep. Am I right? Am I, I'm kind of competing against this person. But we've had enough responses from people who actually get it. Yeah. Like this whole thing is an exercise in exploring unconscious bias. Yep. Yeah, and so and it's, one of the things I like the way you do it is it's interesting because you're not putting somebody on the spot by making it visual, right? And having them see somebody different than the way they thought they were going to be, but they're not having to like sort of feel bad that they didn't guess right. Yeah. You know, the, the very first one that we made, uh, was oh God, like five years ago. And it was an idea between Chan and I. So lineup is, this is the, the latest evolution of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, Chan and I were talking and he jokingly goes, I think, you know, white people are pretty good at discerning Asian foods, but, <laughs> but probably pretty bad at discerning Asian people. I was like, let's make a video. <laughs> so then we invited a bunch of people to come into the studio and we, and first come in, they're like, what are we going to do? And there's different foods sitting there. We're like, try the foods, tell us what country it's from. And they're psyched. They're in it and they're like <laughs> doing it. And they're, oh, this is so, this is Thai. Yeah. No, this is totally Chinese. Right. And they're going at it and for the most part they are pretty good i mean i would say almost everyone uh got it nailed it and then and then we brought out asian some asian people <laughs> and we were like all right match the country to the person and you just watched how their assholes clenched up because of the idea <laughs> of suddenly making public these private judgments that you make and uh and then what's nice about a game though is that it gives you permission to transgress these you know rules in society where you're not supposed to say things like that you're not supposed to make that public yeah. but it's a game yeah. so i just gave you permission they've given you permission because they're there for that and so someone's like i i this person i think is japanese why uh, uh you know like just watching that take place what's what's funny is that chan did relatively bad and chan is half chinese and half filipino and again he's a visual anthropologist and just watch he he did worse than a white couple before him wow who i think got them all right um but let's be fair i think that was there was some luck there uh but it, the whole point of that exercise was to acknowledge certain things right that um you know so much of what we consider race is just uh it's just imaginary lines that get changed. You know, what does it mean to say that this person is from this country when, you know, a hundred years ago that country didn't exist, you know, it's a different yeah. line. So, um, but what was nice is at the end of that, 
everyone who participated in it ended up in this weird kind of organic seminar where they were talking to each other about why they thought certain things. And the, the people who were in the Asian lineup were doing the same thing back to them, you know, because we didn't just have <laughs> white people. We had Asian people also try to guess, you know, and just watching them all kind of interact and, and, uh, and get into it was probably the most exciting thing I've, I saw had seen in a while because mm-hmm. people don't like talking about race because it, everything is reduced to some kind of, um, a, a morality, right? Like you are, I'm a good person or I am a bad person. If you, if you are racist, then you're a bad person. If you're, if you're not racist, you're a good person and no one wants to offer anything f- for fear of being seen as bad. Mm-hmm. And so to watch this delightful conversation where people are joking and talking and, and trying to understand each other's point of view was exactly the point of the whole video. Do you think we're, so two things. One, do you think we're biased because partially because of our need to sort of elevate ourselves over other people? And then second part is, do you think, we're also more racist and biased because we're afraid to talk about it with each other. Wow. I think, I think there is that kind of, um, I think there is both. I think both those things are true. I think, uh, I think the main reason why we are, why these kind of unconscious biases exist, like racism, um, is because, we don't want to talk to each other about it or really examine it in a real way. Um, it's very easy to become defensive. It's because it's really easy to, to become really aggressive and assertive about that kind of stuff. I, I know I've had those conversations yeah. before with my own family. For your plates. What's that? And blame others for your plates. Yeah. Yeah. But that being said, I mean that usually those, those, the blaming is right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like I think, I think the thing is, um, there's there's a we live in a world where i truly believe that the power structure is set up in such a way that black and brown bodies and minorities and are are they're at a disadvantage and i think the problem is that uh, the people who can take advantage of that world like the those of us with privilege um, don't want to examine that mm-hmm. because it makes us uncomfortable. You know, uh, I remember being a kid and my grandfather, I'm half, I'm half white. My dad's white and I'm half Filipino. My mom's from the Philippines. So she, you know, she f- came to this country at 18 years old and didn't become a citizen until two years after I was born. So I'm like very mindful of race and, and being an immigrant and mm-hmm. things like that. And my grandfather, I remember watching my white grandfather complaining about something on television about a, uh, you know, like a Native American saying something or I can't remember if that's or maybe yeah, I can't remember who it was. It was some during some sh- during some award show. Mm-hmm. There's there was like a, a political moment and he was like, How, what, what does this have to do with us? He's like, I didn't do that. You know, I wasn't born back then. And I'm like, yeah, thankfully, because (laughs) then you'd be a huge asshole. This is an opportunity for you to kind of go, uh, well, and yet I continue to take advantage of these privileges that have kind of like come down the pipe, 
right? Like Ijioma Luo um, talks about how privilege is a little bit like a generational savings account where like it keeps paying dividends. Mm -hmm. And if you're not going to address that, then really what you're saying is I'm perfectly comfortable accepting this money and then washing my hands of any responsibility. And that's pretty fucked up. Yeah. It's a great way to look at it. I haven't thought of that before. That's awesome. Um, it's a good book. You guys should read yeah. it. So you, th uh, so you want to talk about race, Ijioma. Okay. I'll check it out. Um, what are some other formats you guys do to sort of break the bias? Oh boy. I, I remember when we did uh, black parents explain to their kids how to deal with police, which is probably one of my favorite videos of all time. And the reason why I love that video is because we were flooded with comments and that were almost overwhelmingly positive from everybody, uh, from every kind of person. Uh, and the types of things that we were hearing from people in the white community were, was, wow, I finally get it. I finally understand privilege. I didn't think this was a thing until I saw this video because it suddenly occurred to me that I'm never going to have to have that conversation with my kid. <laughs> and that was literally the point. Like, I, I think part of the problem also with typical types of diversity training is that it's very, uh, it's prescriptive. Mm -hmm. And so it's, no one likes to be told what to do. No one likes to be told to think a certain way. Yeah. Um, there's almost, you bristle at that. Like everyone does. Yeah. You sit down. You're just like, fuck you. Yeah. I'm going to do my own thing. Totally. Yeah. And so you can't tell somebody all the time what something is. So then you have to actually show it. Mm -hmm. And that would, that's the goal of a piece like that is for them to watch it and then kind of like internalize for themselves what happened mm, and self-reflect. Exactly. Yeah. And then, um, let's see here. Uh, we did a series called one word where I just invited the first one. Uh, I invited, um, black men from the ages of five to 50. So five, six, seven, eight, nine, all the way up to 50 years old. And then we just gave them a series of words and then asked them to respond honestly to those words. Mm -hmm. And they could respond with one word. They could respond with more. And, you know, one of the words was police. And this was right around the time of Ferguson. And, uh, it was like right after Ferguson happened. And the, you, you it's heartbreaking. Cause you're watching a five-year-old talk about heroes and like a six-year-old talk about guardian seven-year-old talk about protector and then something happens and it changes and pretty soon those hopeful words become intermixed with uh with words that are more grounded in like fear until you get to a place where at the end you know it's um anger and sadness and like a sense of hopelessness you know Wow. And it and I remember the response from that video uh, was shocking because there's so many people complaining that there were no white people to talk about police. They're like, what? What about why <laughs> you did five black men from ages five fifty? It's not fair. What about the white people? To be, and, and I was like, it's called black men from the ages of five to fifty <laughs> respond to police. Number one. Number two. Sometimes your job is just to fucking listen. That's all it is. Yeah. This is this isn't an argument. They're not arguing with you. This is uh, what is the purpose of you trying to invalidate their feelings? You're not actually in a conversation. Your job in this moment is just to watch this video and take it in. Did you identify more as white or as Filipino growing up? Oh my god, that's a hard question because my mom was she was in assimilation mode, mm. and I remember when I was little, I was like I wanted to learn. Tagalog and 
you know, I was surrounded by all these Filipino family members and, and I understood what they were saying, but I couldn't say things back to them really other than like, you know, obviously swear words and that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> just like every other kid. Totally. But my mom was al- almost like she was consciously not teaching me. Whereas my cousins all could speak, you know, Tagalog. And, uh, and I remember that being like a real problem. And when I turned like 13, I remember having a full on argument with her about what it meant to be Filipino versus being, you know, this white kid. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm obviously very light skinned. I mean, I, you can't tell cause this is podcast, but <laughs> I, I'm very light skinned, but I have the features of a Filipino. Yeah. And, uh, and the fact that I grew up with this, all this Filipino family means that I'm like, I'm constantly aware of race. Um, in a way that I don't think most white people are, but I get all the benefit and the privileges of passing as a white person. Mm-hmm. And when I was young, it was like a struggle. You know, I, I, every time I would ask my mom questions, I was like, who is the Filipino equivalent of Shakespeare? Right. Which is, um, it made a lot of sense as a question as a kid, but now as I'm older, it's kind of like a, it's like, you know, the the measure of success doesn't have to be a white Western person, you know, like, you know, really what I was asking her was who are these great cultural figures that I can look at and think about. And she dismissed it so much that it frustrated me. Um, I ended up working for the Filipino American Herald briefly. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had a column called pointing with my lips, which is a thing that (laughs) Filipinos do. Um, So I tried to exercise that kind of confusion through that. Yeah. And then what, really did it for me was realizing in the responses from the Filipino uh, Americans, most of whom were first generation, they had fl- they had come from the Philippines and how they weren't a fan of my column because I was, I would signify on stuff. I would be like, this is a letter I'm writing to Imelda Marcos, you know, like I'm just, <laughs> just because it was like this weird sort of game. Like how do I engage in this? Yeah. And I realized I'm not Filipino mm-hmm. because Filipinos think about themselves very regionally. Mm-hmm. I'm Filipino American mm-hmm. and Filipino Americans think of themselves as they're culturally, you know, Filipino, but they are, but it's, it's really, they're American. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think of myself as like, I'm from Cebu or something. I think of myself as I'm an American and I have this, this kind of like, um, this sort of like deep rooted, culture that was given to me by my family and it's kind of like it's influenced everything that i've done but it is not the same experience as theirs sure yeah i had um when i was growing up i kind of ran away from being indian yeah you know and i struggled with that and it's funny because in do you call yourself ash yeah and they used to call me coconut brown on the outside white on the inside okay but my friends would call me indian in america and then when I go to India, they would call me American. Yep. So you didn't really belong anywhere. And I think that's part of my passion around diversity and bias breaking and storytelling is that <clears throat> um, the way to get people to understand you is to sort of walk them down a journey. Yeah. And that's kind of where that started. And I feel like you do that too. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I talked to like some of my friends who um, a friend of mine named Natasha Marin wrote a book called uh, Black Imagination or she curated a book called Black mm-hmm. Imagination. And it's a powerful book and it's like, you can find it on McSweeney's and you know, she, uh, she does a lot of work in diversity, um, both as a conceptual artist, but also just for companies. And, you know, I've had some conversations with her about 
being mixed, you know, and there's the, the, the thing is everyone's mixed, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, every, every, you know, like, uh, it's, it's kind of, so it's, it's kind of silly to say that you are in some ways, right? Yeah. Like, because it's culturally it's, mixed, economically mixed. Right? Yeah. It's like every, everyone, yeah. you know, like no one is genetically pure anything. Yeah. Right. And I think that, um, so then you, she challenged me and she's like, when you think of yourself in terms of like this idea that you're mixed, right? What does that mean? Like wh- what have you attached to it? Are you saying it because you want closer proximity to whiteness? Because that in some way elevates you over other, you know, people of color. Yeah. Like that's a great fucking question because then as a kid, what you hear all the time is how attractive you are when, because when white yeah, people and can. people of color <laughs> make babies, it's like, they're such cute babies or, you know, it's like this weird sort of um, elevating thing that that uh, that happens in in uh, in all kinds of cultures. But I, I, I saw it a lot growing up. Mm. So now the way I I kind of view it is I do not view it as in some way of like trying to have dominance. Yeah. I view it as a um, as just a feature of sort of like my you know, like maybe a, one of the origins of my general existential despair, mm-hmm. you know, because you're like, I don't, <laughs> like you said, I don't know if where I belong yeah. and you're trying to figure it out and, and you're, you're constantly questioning the, how authentic you're being in this, in this moment, yeah. you know, am I being sincere or am I just like pacifying myself? Yeah. You know, it's a lot of guilt around it too, right? Well, I'm also Catholic, so that's like <laughs> that's like my bag. I mean, the, in the Philippines, they literally crucify people during holidays, so it's kind of like, I mean, yeah. Um, so, what does consciously unbiased say to you? Uh, we had a conversation like a long time ago, and you know, you were kind of describing how this came about. And I remember when I saw, when I saw the the term consciously unbiased, and my instinct was, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, we talk about unconscious bias all the time, and we talk about it in a way as if it's a given, as if it has to be that way. And I think what consciously unbiased means is that, is that we make a choice, like we have to make this choice, and we have to make it all the time, yeah. to be to to practice that, and not to just accept it as sort of like. Um, a feature of being human. Well, you can argue that it is a feature of being human, but I mean, we also uh, don't shit in the woods anymore. And you know, like we have air conditioning. So there's lots of things we've done to kind of like mold ourselves. <laughs> yep. And I think that's one way that we can. Yeah. Why should companies care about diversity? Oh man. Um, Cause right so now- I'm not going to say any of the reasons why, <laughs> why, people say that you should or like I think it's bad marketing for diversity (laughs) when (laughs) when uh when people try to read try to talk about why it's good for the world it's fucking obviously why it's obvious why it's good for the world and the same reason why you don't have to believe in climate change to understand that you know not not creating pollution is good for the world right um duh I think I think what you have to do for companies because unfortunately we live in a capitalist society is you have to draw 
a connection between the decision of of investing in diversity and showing a real return on investment mm -hmm. and in the same way like all you have to do is show how much more money you can make not being a shitty polluter than <laughs> than being one yep. and that the ones that are uh that aren't engaging in it are going to fail mm -hmm. in the long term like it just will happen yep. at some point if all your value comes from a finite resource that is diminishing you know every single day then as a company you're not going to exist yes so uh, oil companies aren't going to exist mm -hmm. and so you have to do the same thing with diversity you just have to show them and i think the thing is um you know the i i can't remember the exact stat now but knowing that in that the average lifespan of an s p 500 company has been significantly reduced over the course of the last 30 years to the point where you know, it used to be 33 years and now it's 12. Mm -hmm. uh, and then by 2027, I think, I think by then it'll be 12. And that means half of all companies on the S&P 500 are not going to exist in the next 10 years. Yeah. And to me, the difference between those companies that are going to exist and the companies that don't are going to be the ones that invest in diversity. That is literally how you're going to survive. I think the problem is we live in constantly you know, shifting landscape. This is unstable terrain. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, technology has has advanced to such a degree and, and, and is so rapid that it's um, destabilizing all these centers, right? Mm -hmm. Like hotels, mm -hmm. Airbnb, yeah. right? Like taxis, Uber, yeah. you know, and that has an impact on real people. Yeah. And I think that the only companies that are going to survive are the ones that, that, don't treat innovation as like this weird skunk works, but actually incorporate it into just the, that's the business. Mm -hmm. I have to act that way. Yeah. And the only way that you're gonna be an innovative company is by attracting and cultivating the very best talent. The very best talent, I guarantee you, is doesn't look like one type of person. Mm -hmm. It looks like a shitload of different people. Yep. And you have to pull them from everywhere. You're big on marketing and social media. Um, and I think what I've been seeing is we're kind of building generation anxiety, right? Because everyone's posting their perfect life. Yep. Right? And so, like, as a kid, we'd, ha we'd have to worry about, like, a few stars that we follow and be worried that they have a perfect life and our friends. There's a lot of normalcy in that, right? But now, like, everyone has a perfect life. And so it makes you feel bad about who you are. And it's creating a lot of mental health issues. And so what are some things that corporations should be looking at in terms of dealing with that? Cause I almost feel like that's almost the final frontier. You could have your arm cut off and show up to work and you can recover from that. Right. But if I say I need a day off or I'm feeling stressed, people say you're soft and it affects your career mobility and stuff like that. And I think it's almost like the final frontier of, of discrimination. I, I can't remember. I tweeted something like, um, productivity and work ethic for its own sake are just pathologies of capitalism. You know, like remember that the next time you send me a f another fucking Gary V video um the yeah there's like a something happened you know in the late 90s early aughts oh yeah neoliberalism and <laughs> there's kind of like this <laughs> insane um excitement around optimization and kind of like uh you know that that translates into different things like you know hustle culture and and, and there's a um kind of this this weird sort of myth of the great man thing that happens in startups and so you know like if you don't go along this mythical journey this like classic archetype that somehow you're not tough enough you know you're not strong enough to have been in it you weren't great in this moment 
And I think the thing is, um, what companies need to do is, is, is recognize like, you know, like what is really the point of this? (laughs) What is really the point of this giant ass company? Is it to, is it to wring every single bit of value out of the people that exist there? Cause you can do that and burn them out and then you've, and then now they're out into the world and you turn them into depressed husks and they'll do it because they think they have to, Mm -hmm. or you can think about yourself as a part of the community, you know? And I'm not saying uh, there can't be rich people and there can't be poor people. What I'm saying is that when you are creating things and selling things and providing services that, that engage with people in the community, you are actually a part of that community. And so you have to think about what it means to be a good steward and, and part of being a good steward is respecting things like people's mental and, you know, emotional health, mm-hmm. you know, like I cut, like, I don't care where anybody is ever, you know, people can uh, be at work or not be at work. The only thing that w- we're at, we ask is that they do the things they said that they were going to do. Mm-hmm. And when people have um, something traumatic happen in their lives, it's like, there's no, okay, you have two weeks to kind of like figure it out. And then, our expectation is you come back and act like a professional and do this. Yeah. We're like, go away, do your thing. If you need help, I will help you. Like, but don't feel like you're, you have to come back, mm-hmm. like get yourself right in any way that you need to, and then come back. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, what happens is that engenders a lot of loyalty mm-hmm. and a lot of excitement mm-hmm. about the company that you're in. Yeah. And, and, uh, I think that the ROI is greater there mm-hmm. than the one, <laughs> the one where you burn out people. Yeah. And you force them to show up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, Michael, I want to thank you. Um, everyone, you guys should check him out on, the, on cut.com. Um, he has some amazing videos and they're super inspiring. And I think it'll really make you think differently on how you view diversity, the environment, um, political, everything. <laughs> <laughs> thank just, you. All right. Thank you. <laughs> You can find out more about our amazing guest and some of the resources we mentioned on the show at consciouslyunbiased.com slash listen. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Bias.